Welcome to the Burn Your Mortgage Podcast, a Canadian real estate podcast that shows you how to pay off your mortgage sooner and live well while doing it. Now, here's your host, Sean Cooper. Welcome to the Burn Your Mortgage Podcast. I'm Sean Cooper, and it's great to be back for another episode. On today's show, I'll be talking to Rob Carrick. Not all journalists get to live their beat, but Rob does. His personal finance column in the Globe and Mail is one regular guy's attempt to make sense of the world of money. He's married with two 20-something kids and constantly figuring out ways to spend and invest intelligently. He asks the same questions you would and applies his experience and contacts to get answers. He got a start in financial writing back in the early 1990s when he covered the Bay Street business scene for the Canadian Press Wire Services. A few years later, he was transferred to CP's Parliamentary Bureau in Ottawa to cover consumer affairs and later the Federal Department of Finance. He left CP and joined the Globe and Mail as investment reporter in 1996. He mentioned to his boss at the time that we didn't do much personal finance coverage in the Globe. The paper's personal finance column was launched shortly afterwards with him at the wheel. What a trip it's been covering personal finance over the years. Rob's seen three bull markets for stocks, a couple of recessions and stock market crashes, one global financial crisis, the incredible rise of the housing market, soaring personal debt loads, and an ever present worry that Canadians aren't saving enough for retirement. Rob knows there is an infinite personal finance content available these days online, in print, and on TV and radio. Come to Rob for his experience, his willingness to challenge stale consensus thinking, and most of all, his ability to make you say after finishing one of his columns, now I understand. In my interview with Rob, we discuss his book, How Not to Move Back In With Your Parents, The Bank of Mom and Dad, Top Mortgage Tips for First-Time Home Buyers, Expenses That May Surprise First-Time Home Buyers, Why You Shouldn't Judge a Bank by Its Hyped-Up Rate, How Failing to Consult with a Mortgage Broker is Borderline Personal Finance Negligence, and The First Home savings account. Without further ado, here's my interview with Rob Carrick. Before we get started, I just wanted to mention that this is the 100th episode of the Burn Your Mortgage podcast. Thanks so much for listening to the last 100 episodes and looking forward to producing another 100 episodes and beyond and having lots more exciting guests on the podcast. So be sure to continue tuning in. Now to our scheduled podcast episode. Hi, Rob. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well, Sean. How are you? I'm pretty good, thank you. Real excited to chat today, especially with someone like yourself who's been writing about personal finance, real estate, and mortgages for many years. So honored to have you on the show and excited to get your insight into some of these topics here. Glad to do it, Sean. Great, perfect. So let's get started by talking about one of your Books here, a book that I read myself. I mean, I, I know that you've written several books here, but just wanted to talk about your specific book, How Not to Move Back In with Your Parents. You discussed a, a number of interesting topics in the book there. I mean, fortunately, we don't have time to discuss all the, the topics 
today, but I mean, certainly it is an excellent book to read for any of the listeners who had the opportunity to read it just as a younger person there. But yeah, I just wanted to discuss some of the topics that you covered in the book as couple topics in particular, maybe your opinion has changed since you've written the book there. But the first topic that I wanted to discuss, and yeah, maybe you could just quickly mention your book and what it's about. But first topic I wanted to discuss was the bank of mom and dad and just how that's changed over the years and what that term means. I mean, I guess originally it was gifting money. But yeah, maybe we could just talk a bit about that and you mentioned in the book and how it's evolving and how it doesn't necessarily have to be monetary, like it could be living at home rent free, stuff like that. So I'd be interested to get your take on that, Rob. Well, the bank of mom and dad, when I first started writing my book, was more about parents helping their kids cover some expenses when they graduated and hadn't quite found a job yet. So it could have meant having kids move back home, keeping them on the family cell phone plan, paying their car insurance, that sort of thing. Now it's become something quite a bit more substantial. I mean, to me, the bank of mom and dad is primarily about financing uh, their kids' home down payments. So we've seen billions of dollars go from parents to their adult kids to help them buy houses in the form of down payments. And my latest research tells me that this bank of mom and dad's duties do not end there and that their parents are also helping the younger kids cover higher mortgage costs, renovations, all that sort of stuff that comes with owning the house. They help buy the house. Now they're helping with costs to own the house. So the bank of mom and dad is a very busy bank with a lot of lines of business these days. Wow. Very interesting. I mean, I guess with the high cost of real estate, that definitely has a big thing to do about it. And what do you think about the whole concept of living inheritance as well? Do you think, what do you think is contributing to that? Do you think it's a bit of both that and maybe you could just briefly talk about like living inheritance? I guess the whole idea that parents would like to see their adult kids actually in, enjoy the, their wealth while they're still alive, as opposed to getting like cash windfall when you don't really need it as much later on in life. Yeah, I definitely think there's more open-mindedness to giving your adult kids money while you're alive and you can see them enjoy it and your grandkids enjoy it and that sort of thing. I think we need to recognize, though, that a lot of families just don't have this wealth to pass down in this way. So it is a very niche sort of thing. It's just that you know, I think it's got a lot of prominence because, yes, houses are expensive and parents are concerned about that and they're concerned about their kids not ever getting into the market. And so they're finding money. So sometimes it's an early inheritance. Sometimes parents are going into debt using their lines of credit to help their kids. And sometimes they're dipping into their own savings. So there's a variety of ways. And one of them is the living inheritance. And I actually think it's a great idea. Why not be alive to watch people enjoy money you're going to give them? No, I agree completely. I guess it's just kind of a balancing act. You don't want to go into so much debt that you make it difficult for yourself as as a parent there. So yeah, I mean, I'm all for it as well. Just be careful. And because uh, I've heard some stories with parents literally taking on way more debt they can afford. So yeah, definitely. It's nice to want to help your kids, but just make sure that you're not putting yourself in too much of a financial hold there either. So Perfect. Thanks for sharing your thoughts on that there. And the next topic that I wanted to discuss that you talk about in your book there is top mortgage tips for first-time home buyers. I mean, you don't have to talk about 10 tips or anything like that, but maybe the first one or two or three that come to mind there, if you like, Rob. 
Well, I think that the lesson we've learned about home buying in the past few years is that affordability is so important. There used to be this idea, like up until recently, that you push your affordability to the max to buy a house and that the house will go up in value and that will validate anything you do. Any struggles you have will be okay because your house is rising in value and it's going to be a great investment. And we've seen some volatility in home prices, and I make no predictions about whether they're going to go up, down, or sideways, but I think the froth is gone, and I think we're getting back to a much more rational market, which is a good thing for everybody involved. But I think what we've learned is that you have to live in the here and now with the house, and it's not all about how much it's going to increase in value. So I strongly suggest that new buyers think about maybe a little bit less than they can afford. You don't need to push it to the maximum. In fact, it's probably bad for your finances to do so. And, you know, people who pushed it to the max and now their mortgage payments are going up because they have to renew at higher rates. It's putting a lot of pressure on households and owning a house should be at least a little bit comfortable. And if you can't make it comfortable, you need to reevaluate what you're buying. Could you find something cheaper? Could you move to a cheaper place? Could you consider a smaller house? Could you consider a townhouse, maybe a condo? There's always options for getting into the market, but managing the costs a little bit. And I really think that is the most important thing a young buyer can do is not bite off more than they can chew. The banks will lend you more than you can comfortably carry if you have a lot of other expenses in life. The banks know you're going to pay your mortgage first. And so they'll give you, they'll lend you a fair amount of money. I would say take a little less. No, that's great advice. Like certainly just because the bank will or mortgage broker that you're working with says you can afford to spend this amount on a property, a million dollars, say, definitely sit down and look at your individual budget because what the stress test doesn't cover is extra expenses that you might have, like especially like someone's expenses if they're a single person or a couple with children. I mean, those situations can be totally different and you can actually spend more on a property if you have children with the Canada child benefit. So, but it doesn't take into account all the extra expenses that come with it there because children are lovely, but they can definitely be very expensive in the early years there. So it's important to sit down and look at your individual budget and just make sure that these payments, the mortgage payments and the other expenses of the property are going to be affordable for the long term. So yes, thanks for that great tip. And was there a second tip that you wanted to share by chance? Well, I would encourage people to think really hard about whether they want to go variable rate or fixed rate. The borrowing environment is changing rapidly these days. And as we're speaking in late November, it's starting to look like interest rates have peaked. It's not a guarantee by any stretch. Inflation could flare up again. It's, can't dismiss that possibility. But if rates have peaked, it's starting to swing attention more back to the variable rate mortgage. But and variable rate mortgages were great for decades. It was the best choice, period. But I think that there's a lot to be said for a nice little fixed rate that gives you three, four, five years of complete peace. You know what your rate is, you're paying your mortgage, you have no concerns about what's happening in the broader world. And I think there's some value in that. You know what, it's not necessarily the cheapest rate, it's the most comfortable rate. And if a fixed rate lets you cross off your mortgage as a thing to worry about, then I think there's some value in that. And I've talked to mortgage brokers recently, and a lot of them are pointing to the three-year fixed rate as being a nice combination between not locking in for too, too long and getting a reasonable rate by today's standards. And they sort of call that a bit of a sweet spot. 
No, I agree completely. And especially as a first time home buyer, if I just had the peace of mind of having a fixed rate can be helpful as, as well. Like, again, this isn't everyone's experience and comfort levels is, is different there, but I just find as a first time home buyer, it could be stressful to have a variable rate. So this isn't like a specific rule of thumb or anything like that, but I would maybe suggest like when you're more experienced, you've had your mortgage for a bit, maybe consider going over to a variable rate there because yeah, what especially when you're owning a property for the first time, there can be a lot of surprise expenses that you may not have anticipated. And if your mortgage payment is fluctuating because you have a variable rate, that can just kind of add a bit more stress to your daily life there. And that actually transitions perfectly to our next topic here. So speaking of home ownership, there are a number of expenses that you may not anticipate when you're buying a property there. I mean, you've heard you speak in person there, Rob, about like some of the drain issues and other things. I'll let you mention it yourself there, but maybe you can just talk about some of the surprise expenses of home ownership that first time home buyers may not anticipate when buying a property there. I think the thing that nothing prepares you for when you buy a house is is sudden repair costs. Now you grow up in a house or a home or some sort of thing. I know you see there's a dripping tap or you or the light bulbs burned out or a light fixture isn't working anymore. But when you own the property, you've got all kinds of different systems in there. You've got heating, you've got the plumbing, you've got the roof, and they're going to fail on you. And it's not unusual to move into your first home and have something go on you very quickly. It's like you're welcome to the club moment. And I think what you rapidly learn is that when these little things go wrong in your house, it's usually increments of $100 and often getting up into thousands of dollars. So I think you want to hold back a little bit of money when you move into your new home, if you can, as a real repair fund. And if it's even $1,000, I think that would provide a lot of peace of mind. So when a plumber comes and he says, oh, it's going to take a couple of hours and my rate is like, you know, $100 an hour or whatever it is. You think, okay, I got cash to cover that. It's not a big deal. So I would say repair costs are going to be right up in your face pretty soon. And they will be probably more expensive than you imagined before you bought the house. Great. I'm just curious, how would you suggest that somebody prepare for that there? Would you suggest like holding back some money from the down payment or having a line of credit or a combination of both? What would be your suggestion for? I think holding back a thousand dollars from the down payment and saying and putting it into a high interest savings account and just calling it my home repair fund is a great idea. Even five hundred bucks, if that's the best you can do, I think it's going to take the edge off when you have to call a plumber or an electrician or foundation specialist or a roofer or whatever, and you get a quote and you see how much you're dealing with. To think that you have some of this money in cash is great. I mean. I would not want to see people use a line of credit just to pay for home repairs like that sort of thing. You should be able to cover that sort of thing in stride, unless it's a big project. I mean, if you're putting a new roof on, that may require you going into into debt for a short period of time. But I think that, you know, people's budgets today are more stretched than they've ever been. And I just think there's probably not a lot of slack in there to cover a a fairly big repair bill. So if you had it in savings account, I think that would be a de-stressor for you as a new homeowner. No, I agree completely. I'm just curious, are there any other surprise expenses for first-time home buyers that come to buy? And what about the idea of using basically the inspection that you do to budget for future repairs there rather than just being surprised like, oh, I need a new roof? Like, what are your tips for kind of 
tackling and planning for those big expenses there? Would you suggest like having some sort of savings accounts just for maintenance and repairs that you're anticipating in the future years, like placing the windows and roof and stuff like that? How do you personally tackle that? And what would you suggest for homeowners? You mentioned the home inspection report, and I think a lot of buyers in some of the competitive high-priced cities probably never got a home inspection when they bought in the past three, four, five years. And I have a brother-in-law as a home inspector, and I've had my home inspected. Every home I've bought, even the condo we live in now has been inspected. I wouldn't buy a place without having that done, so I'm a big believer in it. And one of the benefits, as you pointed out, is that they sort of say, okay, I see you've got a roof on there, and it looks maybe it's going to need to be replaced in a few years. And I can see that you've got your furnace is 18 years old, and the lifespan for that kind of furnace is usually 20 years. So you're right. It gives you sort of a timetable in your mind where you're going to need to spend you know, X amount on a roof and X amount on a furnace, and that's going to be in two years, three years, five years, whatever. Yeah, I think great to budget for it. But, you know, I think everybody's budgeting for so many things these days. I just wonder, like, how many budgets and envelopes or savings accounts we can juggle for all these different purposes. So, yeah, if you can put money away for the furnace, you know you're going to need in the next five years. I think that's great. But I think most households are going to think, well, I'm going to need that money for 50 other things before the furnace repair happens. So I think you're going to need to sort of have a game plan for finding the five or $10,000 you're going to need for when these repairs come up. So uh, it might be, if you're in a certain line of business, it might be your annual bonus. It might be your tax return. It might be the money you get from making an RSP contribution. I don't know, but you're going to have to figure out when that comes up, how are we going to pay it? The home inspector will help you understand how much the costs are going to be. And then it's up to you to sort of figure where will the money come from? Your credit card is not really a very good answer. And your line of credit isn't a really good answer either because Line of credit interest rates today are much, much higher than they were three, four years ago. And it's not comfortable to carry them anymore. So it's like a way I will find the cash to pay for these repairs. You need to strategize. A great tip, Seth. Thank you very much. So yes, switching gears from expenses, you wrote an excellent article a few years ago called Don't Judge a Bank's Mortgage by Its Hyped Up Rate. Yeah, it's an excellent article there. I'll be sure to, to link to it in the show notes here. but. Yeah, in the article you wrote, don't buy the hype for the best mortgage deals as defined by low rates and favorable terms. See a mortgage broker failing to at least consult a broker is borderline personal finance negligence. That's pretty strong words there. But yeah, maybe you can just talk about the whole hyped up rate thing and how it can be a bit deceiving in terms of penalties and other things when, I mean, not to pick on the big banks or anything like that, but yeah, I kind of like saying, like, if you're going to buy a vehicle, you just don't go and buy the cheapest vehicle on the lot. Like, who would do that? Or when you're planning a vacation, like, don't just go to the, the cheapest place possible. You're probably not going to end up having a very good vacation there. But uh, yes, yeah, so if you could just talk a bit about what you talked about in the article when it comes to the penalties and other things like that. Sure. When I wrote that article, there was, the banks were just like, fighting each other to get the lowest rates out there and they were advertising all these low rates which by today's standards sound like almost miraculously low i mean i think in that column i think there was one bank that had some kind of promotional 1.99 percent mortgage rate and that's just a distant memory but the point i was making is that there's more to the mortgage than the rate and i think the next biggest factor is what are the penalties for breaking the mortgage and in the industry i've spoken to a lot of 
mortgage people who tell me that it's not unusual to break a mortgage. You know, people move, their jobs change, whatever. They're selling their house before the mortgage renewal and they need to break the mortgage. And the penalties charged by the banks are vastly higher than many alternative lenders. And so you really want to find out what's the rate, what's the penalty, and also what are the prepayment privileges. You know, people are really wired into that right now because they're renewing their mortgages at much higher rates and they're thinking, what can I do to get my payments down? And one way is to make a lump sum payment against the principal. But Different issuers of mortgages have different rules and different limitations on how much you can pay down. So I would think that you want to compare the the prepayment privileges. How much can I pay down in a lump sum? Can I do double up payments as well? And then you want to compare the penalties if you break the mortgage. And then you want to compare the rates. The lowest rate, especially with houses as expensive they are now, is vitally important, but it is not the only thing. And I think the low rate with terrible penalties and not much in the way of uh, prepayment privileges, that's maybe not the best bargain. I agree completely. And yeah, just following up on the point about consulting with a mortgage broker and it being borderline financial negligence, if you didn't, I mean, many people think, oh, I'm going to take out a mortgage. I'm just going to go to the bank. Like I've had a relationship with the bank ever since I was younger. Like I had my first savings account, then checking account with the bank. Maybe had a student loan or something like that there. So yeah, maybe you can talk about how there are different options out there besides the bank and just the benefits of, of working with a mortgage broker. Well, sure. You know, the banks are big on relationships and they value mortgages as the anchor of a relationship with a client. So they were very keen on having you bank with them and borrow with them and invest with them. But the mortgages, you know, I mean, mortgages are like many hundreds of thousands of dollars. And so it's a very lucrative line of business with them. And they know that people trust them. Banks have high trust level in Canada. We've got very solid, small number of coast-to-coast banks. And I think people have a high trust level there. but. I think the banks don't always offer the best rate or the best terms. And if you want to know how competitive your bank is, the obvious answer is to consult a mortgage broker. Mortgage brokers work with many different lenders and they can give you many different looks in terms of what your mortgage would look like. And I think you really do have to get multiple quotes for a mortgage. I mean, it's the most expensive thing you're ever going to buy, most likely. And I think you want to get the best package of rates and terms. And you may get that from your bank, but I think you definitely want to double check. And often your bank offers you something and you say, okay, I'm going to go check around. You make some inquiries, you find out that's not the best rate or the best terms. You can go back to your bank sometimes and say, look, I found a better deal elsewhere. And often your bank will match it or come close to matching it. So you win by shopping around whether you stay with your bank or not. But I guess uh, further to what you said, you also have to consider the big bank penalties as well, because I guess you mentioned that the stats show that quite a few people, over half of Canadians actually end up breaking the mortgage. So I guess it's important to consider the the whole picture there, because sure, the bank might match the rate, but if you end up with penalty in the five figures later on, are you really saving any money? Yeah, true. You know what? You mentioned the, the number of people who break a mortgage and a colleague of mine coincidentally has been trying to find out where the stats on that come from because I've seen some pretty surprising numbers suggesting that quite a few people... Like seven in 10, I've heard. Yeah, I frankly, I have a trouble believing that, but I don't really know what the right number is. 
I do accept that a lot of people break, but I wouldn't want to over-dramatize this and say you're probably going to break your mortgage because I think you're probably not going to break it. But nevertheless, life is complex and people move and they change their minds and circumstances change. So having a reasonable penalty in your back pocket if you need it, I think that's worth something. Yes, I agree completely there. So perfect. Well, thanks for sharing your thoughts on that. And yeah, just wanted to finish off the conversation by talking about a new way for first-time home buyers to save towards purchasing their home, the first home savings account. And, and yeah, just wanted to get your thoughts on it versus like the RSP home buyer plan. And I'm sure you've studied it a lot and you know the ins and outs of it. Maybe you want to share some interesting things about it that make it superior to the RSP home buyer plan as well. Yeah, I definitely think the FHSA, first home savings account, is where you want to start your saving for a home. But you can only put $40,000 into it or and you can only put $8,000 a year into it. So that's not going to be enough, really. So then you might want to use the RSP home buyers program on top of that. But the FHSA is a great instrument, and I think there's almost no downside to having one, because if you don't buy a house, then you just put the money in your RSP. So there's not really any downside. So in, in essence, all this money you've been putting in the FHSA to buy a house, you change your mind, you don't think you'll ever buy a house, all of a sudden you realize, I've done a lot of work for my retirement saving, and that's a big plus for younger people. So I think even if you just put a little money here and there into an FHSA, the money will grow tax-free. And you can take it out to buy a first property tax free. And you also get a tax deduction for making the contribution like you do with an RSP. So it, in some ways, it's like a, a combination of some of the best features of RSPs and the best features of TFSAs. And like I say, I have not seen anyone present a great argument for not bothering with FHSAs. I think um, if you have any ambitions to own a house, to open one up and put as much as you can in. You don't have to max out. Anything is better than nothing. And the cool thing is you can use the FHSA in combination with the RSP home buyer plan. Originally, there's some confusion around that topic, but it's been clarified. So you can use the together and something cool as well is you can actually like if you have over $35,000 in your RSP that you were planning to use towards the home buyer plan, you can transfer. It doesn't have to be actually a contribution to the FHSA. You could transfer over $8,000 from your RSP over to the FHSA um, to, to utilize that there if, if you don't have the money available. And yeah, I just find the FHSA is a lot more flexible because with the RSP home buyer plan, there's a rule that like when you contribute money, you can't withdraw it within 90 days, but the FHSA doesn't have a rule like that. So like you said, I can't think of a good reason not to, to use it. It's probably not going to cover all of your down payment, but I would say to start there first because this is a lot more flexible. And like you said, it combines the best of both worlds of the RSP and the TFSA into one with the FHSA. The one more benefit of the FHSA is that with the home buyer program, you have to pay the money back into your RSP, but you don't have to repay the FHSA. So you're using it as a savings vehicle. You take the money out, you buy your house, and you're done. With the RSP home buyers program, you're going to be repaying that over the next 15 years in most cases. And that can be a financial obligation that maybe some people didn't expect. Yeah, thanks so much for mentioning that, Rob, because yeah, that's a big one. Like the early years of home ownership can be so expensive. And I mean, I'm not sure if you have any stats or you've I'm sure you've spoken to people, but yeah, I, I just find those years are so expensive. And 
Again, I'm not sure if there's stats available, but I'm sure quite a few people don't actually repay the money in installments over the 15 years. They just don't bother to do that because the life just gets too expensive there. So yeah, not having that obligation to pay it back and extra steps involved. I mean, it's not a ton of work or anything like that, but just not having to worry about that, I definitely think makes the FHSA superior in, in that sense there. Okay, perfect. Well, thanks so much for joining me today. It was a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks for sharing your thoughts on on real estate, personal finance, and, and mortgages. And yes, uh, it was a great chatting with you today, Rob. Good chatting with you, Sean. Take care. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Burn Your Mortgage podcast. Besides being a podcast host, I'm also an independent mortgage broker. If you or anyone you know, family friends, co-workers, or neighbors could ever use any unbiased mortgage advice or a second opinion, feel free to reach out. Email me at sean, that's S-E-A-N, at burnyourmortgage.ca, or call or text me at 647-867-3711 for a free mortgage consultation. Also, be sure to head on over to www.burnyourmortgage.ca and sign up for my free weekly newsletter. As a small token of my appreciation, you'll be able to download my ultimate mortgage checklist on choosing the perfect mortgage. I look forward to hearing from you and helping you with all your mortgage needs. Once again, Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Burn Your Mortgage Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and leave a rating. Until next time, happy mortgage burning. <laughs>